we literally would have had a million downloads by now, which would have been a really nice success story for me. How many downloads do you have now, Mike? I think it's 40,000. So Google's got to fix this. It would be close to a revolution for me if Google added Burmese language support, eliminated the email requirement. You just had to enter your phone number, and that would be a game changer. Silicon Valley likes to say that it's making the world a better place. But that's mostly bullshit. The problems that most famous tech companies are solving aren't real problems. But in other parts of the world, there are entrepreneurs who are building things that are actually changing people's lives in very practical ways. That's what this podcast is about. I'm David Madden. Welcome to The Revolution of Necessity. On this podcast, we share the stories of tech entrepreneurs in developing countries. These are people who are innovating in places where technology could genuinely make the world a better place. This podcast is supported by Omidyar Network. Omidyar Network is a philanthropic investment firm set up by the guy who created eBay, Pierre Omidyar and his wife, Pam. If you like this podcast, please take a second to click subscribe and to rate us. Each week, nearly 6,000 women die during childbirth or from complications with their pregnancies all over the world. In Myanmar, the situation is really bad. One of Myanmar's most successful startups is tackling the problem head-on. Their popular app, Maymay, provides pregnant women with health updates, reminds them about appointments, connects them with local doctors, and also with other pregnant women in their communities. The two cousins behind Maymay have an unusual backstory. We'll get to that in a second. Now, Myanmar in 2018 has a long way to go. After nearly five decades of inept military rule, the country is impoverished and the infrastructure is a mess. Mike Lewin, one of the co-founders of CocoTech, that's the company behind this popular app, explains it like this. All these little things, right? So when Myanmar... I have five friends who've fallen into holes in the ground and they've fallen into live sewage, right? Yeah. This is not like... Just a, walking around the city. Just right? walking around. So you have to constantly look at the ground because <laughs> Lord knows what's going to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then every year, and this is really tragic, every year a few people die because they get electrocuted during yeah. rainy season when there's standing water and then there's exposed power yeah. cables just dipped into the water puddle. And, and you know, this year it was like a, a couple teenagers and an older person died. They just stepped in the puddle. Mm. Just, just walking on the street. Just walking on the street. Mike grew up in the U.S. His parents were doctors and immigrated from Myanmar in the 70s. He had a comfortable life, went to a prestigious law school and landed a job at a corporate law firm. His cousin, Yazamin Tu, had a very different life growing up in Myanmar. He loved electronics, wanted to be an engineer, but computers in Myanmar were expensive and hard to get. Because he was smart, Yazar was encouraged to go to medical school. He became a doctor, but on the side, he taught himself how to code, found books, borrowed computers. He had big dreams. I want to live in the U.S. and I want to get a good job in the U.S. And, but the dream is totally reverse. <laughs> that dream, he says, totally reverse. 
So in 2009, Mike and Yazar meet for the very first time in Myanmar. The two hit it off and thought, hey, maybe we should do something together here in Myanmar. It was kind of a crazy idea. After all, Myanmar was an isolated military dictatorship. But then, in 2010, the military held an election. It wasn't free, it wasn't fair. And no one really expected much of anything to change. But then, the government released democracy icon Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest. And all of a sudden, it seemed like things might change. Nothing was guaranteed, but for Mike, it was enough. He quit his job. So I had no idea what I was doing. I remember I had a phone call with a close friend who said, like, you don't have any plan? <laughs> this is it? You just have some, like, Ill, like vague idea that you want to do something in Myanmar? I was like, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, what did your parents think? So my mother, who um, I love very much, is crazy. I mean, Yaza can attest to this. She's totally nuts. She's um, incredibly bright, um, incredibly dynamic, but she's a bull in a china shop. So she's not interested in, like, towing the line. Yeah. She's not, like, obedient. <laughs> and so to my mother, this is this is great, right? And so I, I know other first-generation Americans who have immigrant parents, and their immigrant parents are usually dead set against yeah. them doing something like that. But my mother's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and probably on the deepest level, that's probably why I felt emotionally prompt to do these things because I was raised by a very strong-willed woman who was always interested in bucking the status quo. And my mother likes kind of trolling me today saying, wow, we were so completely nuts to just be like, oh, this is a great idea. Just give up your six-figure job and just <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just go and do this ridiculous thing. You don't come to Yangon straight away. There's still, the U.S. still has sanctions on Myanmar, still a very, very difficult environment for, for setting up a business. And, and you, actually go to, you actually go to China and set yourself up there teaching English classes. And so what was the moment when you were like, okay, I can, I can go to Yangon? Yeah, so we got lucky. Uh, we were always plotting and working hard, but we basically got lucky. So, uh, so in, I, might, I might get it uh, kind of off, but I think it was in March 2012, Coca-Cola issued a press release on their website. You know, I had like a Google alert for MIMA saying that we really like where the U.S. government stance on, on MIMA is going. We've, and that was a pretty clear signal that sanctions were going to get suspended. And then in July 2012, the Obama administration issued two general licenses suspending general economic sanctions. That was very lucky. And then, you know, I don't know the exact date stamp, but I, I got on a plane to Yangon yeah. either the next day or the same week and plopped down. And then Yaz and I um, basically fumbled around for six months, having incredibly dumb ideas on what to do. And so because of Yazar's background in medicine, they started pitching hospitals. A lot of different ideas. They started pitching in 2012. And in 2014, they were still pitching. We're failing a lot. And I've, we probably met, maybe 50 is too big of a number, but we met with a lot of hospitals and clinics. <laughs> and, but I think the one of the big differences is we were constantly learning during this. So we were taking online courses. I mean, you were always reading books on yeah. computer science and programming. I took 20 courses to yeah. certificates in uh, so programming, data me. science, and business. So, so he and I were always constantly learning. 
So I think that's really important. So whatever all the failures, we were incrementally advancing a little bit. And I think the other thing is we have the courage of our convictions. It's probably just like a biochemical imbalance we have. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's not like something like we had to train, but that kept us going. Was there no moment, Mike, where you were like, we got nothing here? We're- no. I mean, there are moments You were getting a lot of no's though, right? Yeah, we were getting no's all the time. Maybe fortune favors the prepared, like that's kind of one way of putting it. You know, our big break was developing Maymay. How did this break come about? I mean, we weren't thinking about mobile apps at all. And the reason why we weren't thinking about mobile apps, because who had phones? (laughs) Uh, Mike, can you just explain to people what the situation was with the mobile networks in in early 2014? Yeah, so, so... yeah, think of it this way. There was only one mobile network provider, and that was the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications. It was government-run. And probably for various reasons, they didn't have enough towers. They couldn't cover their costs. They were charging, I think back then, $300 for a SIM card. And then you know, like a year before, it was $1,000 for a SIM card. A year before, it was $2,000 for a SIM card. You know, a SIM card costs less than a dollar to produce. So it was to artificially you know, limit supply. And so only rich people were on it. But, you know, late 2013, early 2014, they were starting to liberalize the market. So the government had issued two operating licenses to Norwegian telco called Telenor and a Qatar telco called Uridu. They would wind up launching the networks in September 2014. But Uridu was thinking, oh, when we launched, we should have some um, mobile apps out there. And and basically the way we got that deal was I was sitting, I was at a restaurant and sitting next to me was like the Urdu digital services person. Yeah. That was the connection. And then I met with Julian Gorman, who was the head of digital services for Urdu back then. I think basically Julian put me through this grinder of asking, like it was kind of like an investor conversation. And I guess he was interested enough in my responses. He asked me to prepare like a pitch and then that was, for me, I wrote a 70-page document in three days and caught a cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got your break. You've got this opportunity, but you guys have never built an app before. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've made a decision to build a native Android app. Yeah. Um, you don't know how to do that, but you're doing a lot of Googling, spending a lot of yeah. time on Stack Overflow. How long did you have to do this project? How long did they give you? I think uh, we we deliver like three months, three or four months. Yeah, the same four bar. months, I think. So tell me about that first release. How was it? If we looked at Maymay um, 1.0 today, it would be like laughably bad by our current standards. But for the time, it was an all right, serviceable app that had issues, but it kind of sort of worked. But that actually wasn't, there wasn't any particular problems with that because Uridu, unfortunately, had a bad launch. Yeah. So when they when Uridu launched the first out of, out of Uridu and Telenor, the new telco networks, and unfortunately, the, the system didn't quite work. You know, phone calls didn't work, SMS didn't work, data data would dropped a lot for I don't know the first quarter maybe. Yeah. And so they received a large backlash. Initially, Maymay was exclusive only on Urdu for the first year, I think. And actually, the app suffered a lot from that. Um, and so we learned all these kinds of because people who were on the other network couldn't. Uh, use it. Yeah, they couldn't use the app. Yeah. So I think we quantified it once. It was so, it was something like ninety percent of complaints about Maymay was why are you only on Uridu? Because mm. it was yeah. exclusive to this one network, right? right. Mm. 
And so for Uridu, it was a series of failures, and we all learned from it. And I think the way we think importantly out of that is, one, we got a great partner to this day out of it, PSI, Population Services International. Two, we created an app, maybe where we could focus our efforts on making it better. And then as a company, we started to have an identity. One thing that's very important to the Cocotec story is that you didn't build this maternal health app as a sort of service project. So... In a lot of these circumstances, yeah. a company like Cocotec is engaged to build a product. They build it. The first release is however it is, but the job's done. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really important part. So so, so uh, I think one of the few things we got right in the beginning is that we were not only going to be some subcontractor for services tech company that's that's very common in the developing world. Um, and it's understandable why it's common because that's a good way to get kind of like solid incomes and kind of just survive as doing like contract work. We wanted to be a product company. And so we made sure we own all IP rights to the Meme app. And was that difficult to get? Was that a difficult negotiation? It wasn't a difficult negotiation because we were willing to work for free. Yeah. So you made a bold move here, right? So you've been working together for a year and a half. Yeah. Um, you haven't really got any money. Right. You're living off Mike's savings. Right. Yeah. And here you get your first big break, and you could you could take it as a payday. But actually, you make this decision. No, I'll trade. Right. Sure. I'll trade the the, the money for owning the app. You know, I think where 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 we've been aligned on this is that we always try and think of the long term. What implications does this have five to ten years down the road? Yeah, That's why we don't pay ourselves particularly much. That's why we didn't pay ourselves anything for the first two years. There's lots of reasons why we're careful on um, hiring foreigners, but one of the reasons is foreigners have expecta- inflated salary expectations. Mm-hmm. And so for this, we thought, okay, we, we would have gotten a nice pay today or back in 2014, but that severely limits the kind of company we can become. And so why not bite the bullet and try and and be something bigger? Around this time, Cocotec also got their second big break. They won some prestigious fellowships, even one whose past winners include people like Michelle Obama. And those fellowships, they say, were huge. They gave them money, credibility, confidence. It also gave them some influential mentors from Google and other big companies. And those mentors taught them about user testing and human-centered design. And they put these new skills to work. For example, one time they tested Maymay at an annual training for midwives. There were 700 in the room. They were getting lectured at by these, by these older people for hours. And they're all in their early 20s. So what do you do when someone's just kind of giving you this boring lecture for hours. They're all on their smartphones. So then on a presentation, I just was funny. I said, well, uh, you know, your day's really been riveting, hasn't it? Uh, and, you know, they're all laughing. And then I had, I think, five of them come up on stage. And we did testing. And, and, and we found that there's a whole bunch of stuff wrong with the app. Like the, yeah. the onboarding process, there are too many screens. So to get through all those screens to finally get to the actual features of the app, People, you know, got confused and dropped out. So, you know, stuff like we created this very fancy Google Maps um, interface showing pin drops of all the PSI doctors. 
about a thousand of them you can find in the app. Now, a lot of people don't know how to read maps. So people had no idea what, what maps were and they had no idea what search queries were. So we just changed it to a list. Yeah. And, and so you yeah. really incorporated these ideas of human-centered design and rapid prototyping into your development processes. Okay. How many user interviews do you think you've conducted now with for, for Maymay? Take a guess. I mean, I think it's thousands. It's hard to know exactly. It's probably like 5,000. Where's Maymay at today? Yeah, so we have 100,000 users. We've got, I think it's a million and a half user engagements monthly. It's 150,000 quizzes taken monthly. How many users a month? 100,000. Active users. Try So active users, I think it's around half that that we can track. The problem, people use it in offline mode, so we don't know. Uh, <laughs> so one big story about the smartphones that's important is that Myanmar people um, don't turn on their data a lot, especially once you get out of urban city centers. Sure. So they'll leave their phone data off for months, so then we can't track KPIs. We call it dark data. Yeah. In qualitative interviews, we find that it's out there, but we don't know. Yeah. But you can... You can still use most of the app when it's in airplane mode, right? Yeah. yeah. So the app works in yeah. offline mode. Offline. So basically, we have a lot of use in offline mode, but we can't track it. And so we don't know what's going on. Actually, this is important. The biggest bottleneck on growth is the Google Play App Store. And I've told Google this, but um, so there's been over a million attempted downloads of Meme. The problem is there's a conversion rate of about 5% out of the, those downloads, which match data on the number of Myanmar people have an email address because the Google Play App Store requires an email login. Requires it. Why is that a problem? So when we've seen this over and over again, user testing. So when you try and download the Meme app, you immediately pulled up all in English, the Google uh, window saying, um, you need to create an email account to use Google Play. And Myanmar people have leapfrog email. People use chat apps instead of email. So they use Viber largely, but also WhatsApp and WeChat. And those apps don't require an email login. Myanmar was mostly offline, really, until this opening up of the, yeah. the mobile networks. Um, and so a lot of people just don't have an email address. Most people don't, and most people probably won't for a really long time. So, um, so this is the biggest constraint on growth. And I've actually talked with people in Google about it, and they admit it. The problem is each of Google's divisions are siloed. So until we get the head of Google Play, APAC, in front of us, and it's, it's all in English. There's about four onboarding screens to create a new email address, which are all in English. So no memo person goes through that. And this is a huge constraint on growth, whereas Facebook has a phone number login now. We literally would have had a million downloads by now, which would have been a really nice success story for me. How many downloads do you have now, Mike? I think it's 40,000. It's right around there. Okay. So how have you tackled this big problem? Myanmar people are smart, and they use a popular Bluetooth file-sharing app called Zapia. creates a Bluetooth connection between phones, so you can transfer media mm. um, using the Bluetooth connection. So, of course, you have to be in the same room or, or same area as each other if you're outside to transfer media. Like, we have to hire a bunch of marketing people to go out into the field and do Zapier transfers. One, to meet other humans and do a Bluetooth transfers is much slower than zeros and ones being emitted from a cell tower sure. that are moving close to the speed of light. So, of course, our acquisition rate is going to be a lot slower. And then the cost of all that, people have to travel, right? 
people have, have you done a lot of that though yeah we've done a good amount of it we're trying to scale that up but it's all slower yeah right which is why we forgot a million attempted uh, main main uh, downloads off of Facebook ads and we have I think maybe 40,000 Zapier transfers or I guess probably 60,000 so it's just going to be so much slower and a lot more expensive so Google's got to fix this it would be close to a revolution for me if Google added Burmese language support, eliminated the email requirement. You just had to enter your phone number and that would be a game changer. How would you describe the vision for Cocotech? I, I think that we would like to present a new and innovative model to do um, both development aid and social enterprise. Yeah. So if you look at development aid, it's very top-down. It's very like Western actor dominated. They bring in a bunch of very expensive experts and consultants, and the overhead is through the roof, and they kind of parachute into the country. They spend a, maybe a few years at the most, yeah. and then they're out, and they're really expensive. I think, you know, we are very partial to kind of the Bill Easterly arguments about development, that bottom-up development by people who have skin in the game, meaning people who are from and of the developing world, trying to figure out solutions that they care about long-term because that's where they live, it's their lives, um, are much more likely to be effective and longer-lasting. And something that may be also difficult for people from rich countries to um, come to grips with is there's a lot of developing world people who are smart, and a lot of them are smarter and more resourceful and industrious than a lot of people from rich countries like Yaza here and most of our team because you know over 90% of our team are Myanmar people. And that's a very different model for development aid or social enterprise that these people are equals or maybe superior in a lot of ways. And there's a lot less waste because yeah. uh, we all cost much less than consultants and experts. We think that this is a model that results in greater impact and that's more sustainable. And, and I think that's what we're trying to have Cogotech yeah. represent in the long run. Do you think Maymay could be useful outside Myanmar? Yeah. I mean, we've been asked to introduce Maymay to other countries in the region. Um, is that something you're excited to do? Yeah. We're very excited. So we think this is scalable in other countries in the region. And to the point about developing rich countries, Australia <laughs> is interested <laughs> in introducing Maymay. So it's not just the whole poor country, non-poor country dichotomy is one that needs to be reconsidered. Yeah. So one thing that's important to note is that Cocotech has a big vision, actually, for the way in which technology could improve lives yeah. in Myanmar. And it's not just limited to the health field, actually. And what else are you working on that could make a difference, Mike? Yeah, so we're working on um, municipal tax software, right? So in, in Myanmar, you know, municipal tax offices, they are entirely paper-based. And so in four pilot townships, we've digitized their existing tax records. So, Why um, does tax matter, Mike? This doesn't, this doesn't sound... Uh, yeah. This, this, uh, <laughs> so, 
So what it sounds very dry. Why is tax important? The government doesn't collect enough revenues in order to provide services. So Myanmar collects the lowest amount of property tax, I think, tax across the board in the region. And thus, government department ministries across the board are underfunded. So, so you know, there's a big reason why all the roads are poorly done. Um, all the bridges are poorly done. The power goes out all the time. There's lack of access to quality health care. It's because the government's underfunded. And so if we're going to try and change that, well, then improving tax collection is um, quite important. And also being with, with a mind to where we want to increase taxes is for the wealthy. Um, and so we've been working with the Asia Foundation, digitizing municipal tax collection, so it saves them a lot of time. And then um, it's increased tax revenues, I think, 15%, I think, per township just in the first year, just because the software is better at calculating, to which point one of the tax clerks who had to prepare all these, she slammed her fist on the desk when I asked her if this software is useful. She said, yes, it's useful. I hate writing. <laughs> Are there other big challenges that people in other places maybe wouldn't recognize? There's not just one challenge. There's always a whole bunch of challenges that have to do with lack of infrastructure, lack of low purchasing power from citizens, lack of rule of law. So I always like to tell like this, the, the adoption curves for like tech looks awesome in Myanmar. It's almost vertical, right? For SIM cards and smartphones. One step below that, all the curves are flat. So, so what you mean by that? Mike, is that there's now more active SIM cards than people in Myanmar. And most people who want to have a smartphone have a smartphone. Right, which is fantastic. But then mobile money uptakes very low. Um, Mobile banking uptakes a little bit better. But again, that's only the very small percentage of the population who's wealthy, and then people don't have email and don't know how to use it, and, and introducing any kind of new tech to them is confusing for them. It's like, imagine your parents or grandparents using tech. Sure. It's like like uh, my wonderful... Giving your parents Snapchat. Yeah, exactly. Like, my wonderful <laughs> mother clicks on some bad link in an email every year and gets a virus because <laughs> she just doesn't know she's not supposed to do that, right? And so... um. Um, just imagine like a whole country of, you know, 52 million people or most of the people are like that. And so you have all of these um, problems and that's why it's extremely challenging for tech in Myanmar, not to mention, you know, yeah. tech startups. That sounds like a really, really tough environment to do what you're doing. Why Why do it? Because we, we, we believe what we are doing and then that we love what we are doing. If we pull it off, we'll yeah. have impacted many, many people in a pretty profound way. And that's yeah. pretty exciting. And we think we'll get there. And so for us, this is a long haul, and um, we are deeply invested in it. Do yeah. you think Maymay's already had an impact? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it, already, it already has. Um, so, so rigorously, we won't know until, um, I think, the end of next year because we're going to have a randomized control trial done. I mean, the numbers we have are all great. It's, um, I think it's like 90, 98% of users would recommend it. So users love the product. Yeah, and then over 90% have said they believe it's either improved or saved the lives of mothers or a baby, right, or their children. Um, and then I think, what was the other one? Uh, it's like 70% of users use it every day. 
So, so this is why the Google Play thing is really irritating for us because of the users we can track, they're using it all the time. I, I know you've, I know you've had venture capitalists and impact investors knocking on your door. Tell us about how you've uh, structured the the organization financially. Uh, so, you know, we're we're definitely not against taking investor capital or venture capital. I mean, we're talking- So you haven't taken any, right? We haven't taken any. Right. And, and that's intentional. Because you've had people asking. Yeah. I mean, we've we've walked away from term sheets and things like that. They, is Cocotech a for-profit? We are for-profit. Um, we're actually setting up a non-profit and going to try and hybrid. But um, we are for-profit because if you look at most of the tech companies that have scaled, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, they're for-profit companies. And we think it's because when they're ready to scale, um, pursuing- uh, you know, equity investment is uh, you get much larger ticket sizes. And when the time comes, we are more than interested in doing that. However, I think it's become almost a religion. And uh, we think that a lot of people confuse the sizzle for the steak. An argument we get a lot, you know, especially from, from smart people um, are, oh, well, this would look really good if you had this investor um, with you and it looked really good, and that could attract other money. And we've heard other founders say that, like, I need to do a round because then that signals to other investors that I've got, you know, this investor on, and then I'll get another round. One, we think that's not the reason why you should seek investment. You should seek investment because putting that money in will, you know, jumpstart the growth or, you know, result in exponential growth for the company, which increases ROI. We think of it much more like, why are investors giving us money? They're giving us money because they expect a return. For, ideally, for them, it's some sort of exit, whether it's M&A or IPO or a dividend. We think Myanmar is too early for that. So, mm. so we think it's a very long game for Myanmar. And why start that cycle of investor expectations until we think Myanmar is ready, we're ready, and yeah. we have investors who understand the Myanmar context closely and are not only like for the investor, investee uh, like hype cycle. So you're playing a long game. Yeah. But how are you keeping the lights on while you play that game? I mean, we get earned revenue. I mean, we, we have, we get contracts, we get grants, um, and we also run lean. So we, we may do an investment round soon. We may not. And we're not sort of categorically against um, investors. In fact, we would love to have an investor understands what we're after and believes in us and provide their expertise as well as uh, sure. their capital. But uh, it's not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. The end is uh, to grow Cocoa Tech into a um, you know, successful organization that helps lots of people. Mike, you talked about going to a place where you could have big impact. I mean, how does it feel when you hear personal stories? It's really rewarding. It feels fulfilling. I, uh, t- you know, I don't regret leaving uh, Ameri- you know, the U.S. corporate world at all. And it doesn't feel like work. Like, I don't feel like I have a job. It's just this really interesting, yeah. rewarding, complicated set of problems that, you know, I chip away at in this partnership with Yaza and this, like, incredibly good team we have. It's like very rewarding, and then uh, I'm really, really lucky. We have the same vision, so the same belief. It's like a, a working through learning at the same time, and then that helps a lot of people. So, if we start the clock in 2012, where is Coco Tech in 2022? 
We'll be in a uh, thousand clinics. Our software will be in a thousand clinics yep. nationwide. Maybe I ideally would you know, capture most of the. Um, so it captures a significant percentage of the five million uh, mothers and, uh, will be using Maymay. That's just in Myanmar, though, right? Yeah, you've, that's just you've in got Myanmar. bigger dreams than that. Yeah, and then Maymay and our other, you know, software uh, products and services expand yeah. in the region. I think that's totally reasonable. It'll be hard, but again, you know, the famous league of their their own line. Uh, if it weren't hard, then everybody would do it. Um, it'll be hard, but that's why we're in this. So yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Revolution of Necessity. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be great if you could help us out. Please tell your friends and colleagues about it and rate us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favourite podcast platform is. We'd also love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Medium, Instagram. All the links are on revolutionofnecessity.com. Or go old school and email me, david at revolutionofnecessity.com. Thanks again to Omidia Network for supporting this podcast. To learn more about what Omidia does, check them out at omidia.com. This episode was produced by Naomi Dingold with editing help from Julia Alsop. Our engineer is William Smith. Special thanks to Clean Cut Studios in DC and Symphony Creative Arts Studios in Yangon. We'll have another tech story that matters for you next week. See you then. For two years, Mike and Yazar were pitching ideas and not having any success. Yazar says they survived financially because... Mostly the pay the bills by the Mike man. Yeah, yeah. so basically we bootstrap. So, so another thing that we all have to, to thank, thank the 2008 financial crisis for, that was back when I was, you know, I started earning a lot of money at the law firm right after the crisis dropped. Like... And so the price of equities were extremely low. They had nowhere to go but up. So I just dumped all my money into equities, spare money, and then that plus quantitative easing resulted in just giant year-over-year return ROI um, to generally the S&P 500. And so that was like the seed capital for the company. Okay, so yeah. you're, boot, you're bootstrapping Coca Tech off the <laughs> off the back of the, uh, the 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 American financial rebound. <laughs> yeah, and so that was because um, you're not making any money locally, right? Yeah, no, no, yeah. no money. Okay, were you were you worried at all, or uh, uh, I guess the economy continued to go up, so the so the equity prices were probably. Uh, literally, we we don't get paid for like two years. Yep, two years. Uh, still, still, <laughs> we are get paid very low. <laughs> we we are.